As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Later in the pod, we'll discuss Watford's struggles with Adam Leventhal and our investigations writer, Joey Durso, will detail the story of a bookmaker receiving hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of bets on a player receiving a yellow card in a Premier League game. First up, though, Adam Crafton and David Ornstein are with us to talk about the transfer window as it enters its final week. Uh, will there be any big deals, David? Not that I'm quite sure what a big deal is nowadays, but will there be any? I think there will be a lot of movements or attempted movements in a loan form, in loans with options or obligations to buy. We know that some swap deals are being explored, but in terms of headline-grabbing permanent big money transfers. You know, of course, the likes of Newcastle will try. Aston Villa have done a bit already and might do some more. Arsenal could look to bring in a striker on a permanent basis. So that would be high value. However, from people I speak to in the industry, it's more, as ever with January, some stopgap solutions, plastering over wounds, some emergency recruitment. It's not an opportune time to recruit. Values are not fair, to be honest. Clubs are only making players available if they're surplus to requirements at their own place, which should be cause for concern. Yeah, there are opportunities, players with six months to go, players with 18 months to go, players who have fallen out of favour. But I feel a lot of groundwork is already being done for the summer, and that's ever-increasingly where the significant sums are being spent. The player you talked about, the striker, is Vlavic, I'm assuming, and therefore what is the knock-on effect there with Aubameyang? It's looking increasingly doubtful that Arsenal will be able to get Vlavic. Many people you speak to say it's not going to happen. Not because Arsenal wouldn't be able to agree a deal with Fiorentina. Uh, I think they would be. But it seems he doesn't want to come. Um, That might not just apply for Arsenal. The likes of Tottenham and Newcastle have shown some level of interest. It seems he wants to stay in Italy, continue breaking goal-scoring records and see what the summer brings. And it will bring more options. You know, I've reported previously that he's being monitored by Manchester City. We've seen Juventus mentioned. Uh, Some people think that would be his preference, but it's not clear if they can do it financially at this point or in the summer. And... 
there will be many more options to him there with a year to go as well. Fiorentina would prefer to sell him now when they can get the highest value, but the ball is in the court of him and his agent and and we've known that that's going to be complicated and I feel this opportunity, which is what it was for Arsenal in January, is slipping away and therefore they have to look to other options. I'm told that among them is Alexander Isaac of Real Sociedad. We mentioned it in my Monday column. He has a release clause reportedly, but from people I speak to, it seems that Arsenal would attempt to negotiate a lower fee for him if they were to go for him. I think they're looking into a number of different players and and he's just one of them. I've not been told that he is the preference among the options. And, you know, we've spoken about Calvert-Lewin in the past. Jonathan David has been mentioned. I don't know at this moment in time who the others are but Isaac is among them and this is all intertwined with the future of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang as well he is back training at Arsenal after returning early from the Africa Cup of Nations Um, it seems from his Instagram post that all was clear in the heart checks that needed to be conducted all a little bit mysterious because Arsenal have never said anything about why he came back um, and seem to be suggesting that they were not told why he came back early by the Gabon FA my understanding is that he's working away from the main squad and at different times to them as well at London Colney which was exactly what was going on prior to him leaving for the Africa Cup of Nations and since being stripped of the captaincy there is significant uncertainty over his future and let's see what happens this week. We know Arsenal have an offer for Aubameyang from Al-Hilal in Saudi Arabia to take him on loan with an option of sorts to buy and cover his salary in full. We know there is interest from clubs in Europe including Paris Saint-Germain. With all of them though, the salary, the wages would be problematic and it would need to be something that Arsenal, Aubameyang and the prospective taker would need to discuss. That could go down to the wire, uh, needs to be sorted out or do Arsenal decide that he stays and they try and rebuild the bridges um, and reintegrate him into the squad uh, for the remainder of the season in a position that they're desperately lacking in at the moment. Striker, goals. My information is that he is not inclined to accept a move to Saudi Arabia, that he's fiercely ambitious still and wants to prove his quality and continue competing at the highest level. From Arsenal to Tottenham, Adam, who just appear in a bit of a fog, really, I talked Everton a lot over over recent weeks and talked about different players from different managers there. I mean, it feels like the Tottenham squad is a little bit similar, doesn't it, in in who they might want to move on. I think Tottenham are in a position where they need need to get players out, but the manager wants players in, and that's leaving them in in what feels, feels from the outside a bit strained. I mean, that's just lucky. They've only lost one of their, is it 10 Premier League games now under Conte? It's a pretty good record since he came in as poor as they were in the second half against Chelsea, which makes it all feel a bit doom and gloom. But I, th- I think the broader picture for Spurs is that they're actually in a really good position. If they can get, you know, whether it's Deli Ali or Lo Celso or, I don't know, Sessegnon played on Sunday, but Ndombele, you know, there's those players that y- you know could leave Spurs and it won't really make that much difference to them based on what we've seen over the past six months to a year but it feels like they're going to have to get players out to get players in in this window and I think Antonio Conte is probably in a position where he looks at the games that Tottenham have in hand 
he looks at the level of West Ham, Manchester United and Arsenal and he just thinks, what a great opportunity we've got if we can just get you know, a bit of my stamp over this squad in this window. But as ever with Tottenham, you know it's going to go late. You know it's going to be all a bit stressful between the manager and the chairman. And you're not really sure whether they'll end the window in a better place than what they started it. And Tottenham, like several clubs, David, you know, that we say virtually every week at the moment, they want players out, but where is the market for getting players out and and you're not allowed to just say Newcastle who appear to be who appear to be the market for any disgruntled player at the moment yeah there's been a lot of talk or whispers reports about Deli Alley in Newcastle um my understanding is different to that I'm not sure there's a huge desire from Newcastle to bring him in uh, their priority is Jesse Lingard from Manchester United market wise you're looking at PSG possibly for Tangi and Dombali he was signed by Maurizio Pochettino for Tottenham. He comes from the outskirts of Paris. It hasn't worked for him so far at Tottenham. PSG could presumably take on his full wage, which is one of the sticking points over a potential departure. There was initially talk of a straight loan, but then subsequently the idea of swaps has come in. I think it's one of the things that Fabio Palitici, the um, sporting, what's his job job title? Sporting director. Managing director of football. Managing director of football at Tottenham. Fabio Palitici likes a swap deal, but they don't really happen that much with, with English clubs. It's like one of those things you sort of read about in the papers, but don't really happen. But anyway, they happen in Italy. Um, so he's trying yeah. to bring them here. And they've been trying to do this deal where they know PSG would quite like Ndombele, but PSG really don't want to pay Ndombele's full wages, which are, you know, a pre-pandemic wage. There's a few different names that were mentioned. I think Leandro Paredes was one. He didn't appear to have any interest in swapping, you know, a Champions League run with PSG and hanging out with Messi and Neymar for a Champions League scrap at, at Spurs. I think they also mentioned Ander Herrera, again, who is happy at PSG and also... I'm told, has the position that he would only want to play for Manchester United in England. So they're then left in a situation where Spurs and PSG are struggling to come to an agreement. The last I was told sort of late last week is that it's looking very difficult to pull off for that reason because PSG also need to lighten their wage bill for FFP as well. So they're looking at trying to get players out, same situation. And I think there's also a feeling with Ndombele, you know, it'd be nice to have him but he's not really produced the consistency over the last two years that means PSG will be gutted to miss out on him. I think it's more, if we can do this, great. If not, okay. That's the thing. In terms of who comes in, Adama Traore, I think they're still trying for, from Wolves, is one. And I don't know if you've got anything on the sort of central midfield options that they might be looking at. Just back on Ndombele, I'd be intrigued and nothing more than a few whispers to see if they look to do something with Vinaldum and Ndombele because it hasn't really worked out so far for... Genie in Paris and although there are suggestions he's determined to see out the season that's certainly one that would potentially get Spurs excited and fill the midfield void that you're mentioning there. No, from speaking to people around Spurs Adama Traore definitely could happen uh, it's not done yet there is a feeling among the Wolves hierarchy as Tim Spears reported on The Athletic last week that it will get done and it's the versatility that he brings that would appeal to Tottenham. He could play a right back, right wing back, more advanced position, even 
somewhat centrally. And, you know, there have been suggestions of a centre-back. I'm told that that's not happening, that Tottenham are not pursuing a centre-back before the deadline. Um, Charlie Eccleshaw on The Athletic has reported maybe an attacker, and that would be separate to Adama Traore. But it may be contingent on the Steven Bergwijn situation, because, of course, he's wanted by Ajax, but uh, Tottenham are resisting that so far, and he's obviously taken on a pro- more prominent role since his late goals at Leicester. Giovanni Lo Celso, Tottenham, as we revealed in the Monday column, have been exploring a possible swap deal for him. Again, it's tricky with, it's not insurmountable, but tricky with the different salaries of these players and trying to um, marry them up so that these swap deals can happen. They're rare because they're so difficult. But as Adam says, that Paratici has made a bit of a specialism of it when he was at Juventus. But but the problem is, David, if they're trying to, you know, if you try and take someone from whether it's the French League or the Italian League or Spanish League or German League at the moment, they're not on Premier League wages. So you're, you're, it's going to be very, very difficult for them, unless it is a, a PSG, for, for Spurs to actually do these swap deals where clubs want basically the same sort of ballpark in terms of wages. Or if not, Spurs are going to have to start covering. Exactly. Spurs pay half the wages exactly. of the player that is leaving. And you, yeah. and you can imagine how that will go down in the Spurs boardroom. So... Yeah, I think they're in a bit of a catch-22 at the moment. I think they have also got... I think Spurs would be quite entitled as well just to say to Conte, look, I mean, Lo Celso is not a terrible player. Um, and Dombele, OK, we've, we've had issues over the last year, but I think they would be entitled to say to Conte, let's just see what you can get out of these players. You are one of the best coaches in the world. I don't think it's outrageous to expect you to work with Lo Celso until the end of the season, worst case scenario. But clearly you can see him agitating a little bit at the moment and trying to force things. Yeah, and I do think that Conte, depends who you speak to, but most people say he was made aware ahead of coming into Tottenham that January was not going to be a window in which funds would be made available. I'm not sure he's angry about not being able to spend this month necessarily. It's more the realisation, slightly counter to what Adam just said, that the players at his disposal are not good enough to do what he wants to do ultimately, which is succeed and challenge towards the top. And he's made that painfully clear for Spurs fans and executives in the last two meetings with Chelsea in the League Cup and Premier League on Sunday. He feels they're years behind. And just one more tiny bit on Adam's midfield question. Keep an eye on Frank Kessie this week from AC Milan. He's a free agent in the summer, so that would ordinarily be most likely his time to leave AC Milan um, on a lucrative Bosman. But Tottenham have looked at him. They're not the only club to have, and I'd be intrigued to see if somebody tries to escalate it and steal a march on their rivals before... Uh, the summer comes round. Also in your column, David, Manchester United are stepping up their search for a new manager. What does that mean? Does that mean that they're, they're, what, compiling a database as large as they want for right-backs? Or how how are they stepping up this search? I'm not going to let your cynicism drip through to me. I'll just... Ex- well, <laughs> blimey, Charlie, David, they must know who they're going for. Christ. No, so the information is that United will begin the process to uh, appoint the permanent manager in the coming weeks. And that means drawing up their candidates, which I understand will include the likes of Pochettino, Ten Hag, Luis Enrique and Yulan Lopetegui. Um, And making sure that come the summer and Ralph Ranić leaving the dugout for what they have an option to be a consultancy role for two years. 
somebody is ready to come in, somebody who has big club experience under their belt already, all of the aforementioned names do, and that they can hit the ground running into the summer window, which is a summer without a major tournament, and prepare for the 2022 to 23 season properly. Is that an option for the consultancy agreement then, rather than an obligation? The plan is for him to take a consultancy role, exactly what form it takes. I'm not sure... That was quite clear when it was agreed and that gives flexibility for both parties. If United want him to take a prominent role and be there for them all the time or be there now and again, they can and the same with him. I mean, he might look to take a job elsewhere. Who knows? I think it was quite loose and I don't think it's been sort of ironed out exactly what form that will take. What is the expectation at United and across the industry is that he's not in the frame for the permanent job himself, which I think he said tongue-in-cheek in in his first press conference that I might recommend myself. We don't know what level of involvement Ranić might or might not have in the permanent appointments, whether he would recommend people from his own alumni in the Red Bull group, etc., or those elsewhere in the industry. And I would suppose that United have been thinking about their targets for a while. It's just that I'm told that the actual process to make the appointment is beginning in the coming weeks. Presumably, they're going to be... Talking. Well, talking, but potentially upsetting some very big clubs across Europe over the next few months. And how, how do you have those discussions without causing pretty sort of dramatic tensions as the Champions League revs back up, whether it's you know PSG or Ajax or Sevilla? You speak to intermediaries, you conduct your analytics process and you scout managers like you scout players ahead of a transfer window I don't necessarily think they're sitting down with these guys and holding in-depth discussions and interviews maybe they they can in some with some of them I don't feel it's the sort of thing that would be played out publicly and wreck the seasons of these people I think it's more a behind the scenes fact-finding initial discussions as they formulate their candidates list and ultimately the chosen man himself. I think Ronaldo's a factor, Adam, bearing in mind the piece that you wrote. Yeah, I think any manager coming in would like to know whether Ronaldo will be there next season. I imagine Ronaldo himself would quite like to know who the manager's going to be next season in the same way as anyone that Manchester United are attempting to sign in the summer would like to know what kind of manager that that they might be working under. I think that's one of the the big difficulties with the the decision that they've taken to have an interim manager and and then go about a hiring process when the hiring process involves other managers who are in work. It makes it very, very difficult to have any kind of honesty with prospective targets. With regards to Ronaldo, I I think, you know, the, the things we know are should United not finish in the top four, his salary will drop by up to 25%. He'll still be all right, I imagine. In a broader sense, you know, there were some stories last week that if they don't get into the Champions League, he might not want to stay. I think there might also be a feeling, you know, amongst some coaches who might be coming in that that, in some ways, it could do them a favour in terms of solving, you know, the big dilemma of the season. And that's arguably what the piece was about, was in turn, both on a personality level, on a... Uh, a tactical level the, the big question of the season has been can you create a winning team with a 37 year old 36 37 38 year old Cristiano Ronaldo and you know United have tried three at the back four at the back t- uh, 4-2-2-2 4-2-4 4-2-3-1 they've tried pretty much every tactical variation they've put him next to 
Mason Greenwood, next to Marcus Rashford, next to Anthony Alanga, next to Edinson Cavani. They've all sort of had different levels of, of success, but it, I think it's they're struggling to get real cogent team performances with Ronaldo in the team at the moment, despite his individual performances. And people will also come back and say that Manchester United played in moments before Ronaldo returned to the club anyway. So it's very difficult to know, as ever with United, is this just a talking point that masks bigger problems or is this something that actually could make everyone's life a bit easier next season and help liberate talents such as Jadon Sancho, Mason Greenwood, Marcus Rashford, who's obviously you know getting back in form, and Alanga, who's obviously coming into the scene as well. I mean, the thing is, if they do lose Ronaldo, they'll have to replace both Ronaldo and Cavani this summer. So then you start thinking, OK, well, which strikers are available? And I think you know it's fair to say United won't be getting uh, Haaland or Mbappe, so you're already dealing at you know the second tier after that there seems to be this notion or question are United worse with Ronaldo and I know we explored a number of the issues the background to the move and some of the complications within that piece that people can read on The Athletic but an amateur observation from being at Old Trafford on Saturday is that Ronaldo is a class above most of those players Ronaldo he's popular with with players on, on one level but I think there is also this feeling that there are people who have come to expect that he is like there to develop Mason Greenwood or Marcus Rashford or Anthony Alanga. He's not. He came into yeah. a side that had just bought Jadon Sancho and Rafael Varane, finished second, been in a European final, and they were meant to go from second to first and win trophies this season. They've not done that. He's not there as part of a project, project of development. He's there to win. And United have failed at that side of the bargain. So that's where the frustration is. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So let's talk Watford then with Adam Leventhal, who covers uh, the Watford beat for the Athletic. There seems to be an assumption in the in the footballing world, Adam, that Ranieri will be sacked by the Watford owners. What are you hearing? I think that that's the assumption based on a on a track record of of Gino Pozzo to to do exactly that, and I don't think it would surprise anyone if that is the decision that's going to be made. The main reason why is that they would have gone into that Norwich game thinking that it would be a step up, an opportunity to kick on from a good point against Newcastle, to build on that, to put a bit of distance between themselves and the the chasing pack. And that didn't happen. And it was an embarrassing defeat against a poor Norwich side where everything that could go wrong went wrong on the television with Gino Pozzo in the director's box watching on. And... I suppose the only thing that might change things is there is a little bit of a gap until the next game. 
and there is an opportunity just to take stock. And the fact that also, I suppose you can read into the fact that, you know, it was it was on Friday night. They were probably expecting to win the game, so they didn't necessarily have someone instantly lined up, which is their their way of doing things. So the fact that he hasn't gone yet, as we record this around lunchtime on on Monday, is maybe a sign that they are just taking a beat before making an ultimate decision. Is there a bit more of an emotional connection between owner and manager this time than with previous ones? Yeah, I mean, you know, he's a, he's an old sage. You know, he's been managing for thirty five years. It's someone that. They have known for a long time. You know, Claudio has has said on a couple of occasions, actually, I remember when Gino's dad, Gianpaolo, tried to appoint me at Udinese, you know, <laughs> 25 years ago or whatever. Yes, there is that connection. There is a, a respect there, but they can't shy away from the fact that it's been an awful run under Ranieri. They've only won the two games. They've lost 10 and they should be beating the low-hanging fruit around them, and they haven't. And that's that's where they will have to probably just take a step back and think, well, look, if he's, if he's not winning games against these sort of sides, maybe we should make a change. I've spoken to a few Watford fans about the, the situation with, with Watford this season. Would it be fair to say that there's more anger towards the players this season than previous years? In that, that I mean, I've said this a few times as well, They've lost a few stalwart, and I'm not just talking about Dini here, but over the last two, three years, they've lost stalwarts of that team who maybe showed a bit more character. I don't know. You maybe showed a bit more that word leadership again. Honestly, Adam, to me, this squad feels so fluid. I'd, I'd look at a team sheet on a Friday or a Saturday and someone over the plane thinking, my God, they brought, they brought someone out. You know, who, where's he come <laughs> Where's he come from? Or who, you know, sometimes literally, who is that? Those rocks of the squad don't appear to be there anymore. I hear what you're saying, but I think that also the accusation was when those rocks were there, and this isn't just Dini, that there needed to be a refresh. And there right. there was that. And they did bring in a number of players, in particular in midfield and forward areas. And let's not forget, they've actually been relatively good going forward they have looked dangerous if you compare them against the other relegation chasers uh, relegation chasers rele- fighters um <laughs> yeah no one wants to go down um well, it has looked like some teams do want to go down I, I must say but you know if you compare them to to those those other sides they have they have been in games because they've been able to score it's just the problem that they haven't been able to keep those goals out at the other end and this is where the hierarchy, I think, will, will be viewing this, that they have actually acted in this January transfer window. You know, if you compare them to how Newcastle have operated, who've got millions and millions and millions of pounds, they're struggling to get signings in. Watford have actually highlighted areas that they needed to improve upon in central defence, left back and an extra midfielder due to some AFCON absentees. And they have actually brought them in. And against Newcastle, they did actually look as if they were going to make a difference. Yes, there has been a huge amount of transition of of players. But by doing that, you also do bring in players that aren't necessarily carrying the baggage of a previous relegation from 2019-20 as well. So, you know, these players, the likes of Musa Sissoko or uh, Joshua King or... Or maybe Joshua King, because he did go down with, with with Bournemouth, but Emmanuel Dennis coming in, they're not coming into to Watford thinking, oh, this is going to be a relegation scrap. We, you know, we we're going to really struggle. They come in with a bit of a fresh outlook. So yes, there has been criticism of the hierarchy for not doing enough prior to this transfer window, but they have actually done something in this window. So 
you know, it's yeah, a difficult okay. one to to balance it all out. Yes, there might not be familiar names, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're bad players. Then they have actually come in and, and they did actually do well against Newcastle, not necessarily against Norwich. The thing is, every time Watford sack a manager, I find it really hard to criticise them for sacking that manager at that time because we know that's the model and it's had such great success over quite a long period of time. The thing, I think I've said this about now, like the previous two or three managers, apart from, um, who was the dude that got them at Cisco? That, that Cisco that got, got them up. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, when, apart from him, <laughs> it has felt like they've, they've lost their touch when it comes to the smart hires. So, you know, when they got Javi Gracia in and everyone was like, why have they gone and got Javi Gracia in and then he did quite well for a bit? Or whether, you know, whether it's Kike the first time round or even Mazzari started okay. Marco Silva. Um, so, so it felt like they had a bit of a Midas touch. Increasingly, though, it feels the opposite. After Cisco, they had to get that one right. And Ranieri struck me as a really sort of unthinking appointment by, by their standards. You know, you, always, you always expect them to come up with someone, not that you've not heard of, but that you really wouldn't expect to see at a Premier League club um, overnight. And, and Ranieri was like, well, he seemed, from a Premier League point of view, at Fulham, he seemed a bit sort of past his best, to be blunt. You know, he never looked like keeping Fulham up when he was there a couple of years ago. Obviously had a poor final season at Leicester as well. And it just felt a bit, it felt quite underwhelming to me at the time. And, and it continues to now. I mean, I don't, I, I don't have any confidence that Ranieri would keep this team up whatsoever at the moment. But again, the thing is, increasingly, do I trust the Pozos to go and replace him with someone better. Do you think the squad's actually good enough? Is is there is there an argument that you know you could go and get Jurgen Klopp in and they probably might not stay up this year? I think that the that there is enough in that squad to finish above three other ordinary sides. I mentioned obviously that they can they can score goals. They do have some experienced players in there. If I was in their shoes, I think this is less focused on on the on the head coach yes there's going to be gripes with with some of the players there's been sort of arguments in the dressing room and stuff like that but you would expect that you know you lose game after game after game it's not going to be a happy shiny place is it so they they are going to be arguing they're going to be singling players out you don't pass enough you don't do this you don't do that good but that needs to then be framed in a constructive conversation away from a, a match day get everyone together and say, look, what, what are we here for? Can we achieve our goal? And how are we going to do that? And how are we going to make it work? They need to bash heads together rather than just chuck another head coach out of the door. And I think that what Ranieri said was there needs to be a change of mentality. And you know, if, if you've got someone that is vastly experienced highlighting that, you need to listen, I think. And there needs to also be an acknowledgement at the higher levels to go, yeah, that maybe that maybe it's a you know there's trust issues at the club the culture's not quite right let's try and sort of keep together rather than having another fracture but having said that by the time this comes out i probably will have written a piece about a new head coach coming in who we've never <laughs> heard of so who knows are they okay if they go down in the same way that you know, Norwich prepare themselves for relegation. They get stick for it in the same way that, it's, you know, you look at the Championship now, Fulham deal with relegation. Are, are Watford similarly, I mean, stable feels like a, the wrong word to use, but in this case, are they similarly stable if they go down? I think the stability comes from being able to sell very saleable assets and they will have those. The likes of Ishmael Assar, 
uh, Emmanuel Dennis would go, you know, Joshua King could still bring in some some money. And there are a few few others. And they will have a confidence having gone down and come back up that they can do it again with a squad that wasn't necessarily particularly together. And it was only after that game against Coventry, that nil-nil, where they all sort of did what I was saying before, knuckled down, bashed some heads together and actually just said, look, come on, let's just let's try and stay together and get ourselves up under under Shisco Munoz. So it would obviously be worrying because the, the Pozzo plan is never to be a yo-yo club. That almost seems to be the accepted wisdom of, of Norwich. They, they're happy being in the top 25 teams. Watford want to be established in the Premier League. And there would be more worry if they did go down that they might it might spiral more out of control. But I think they would still have enough to, to win a, a, you know, a, a promotion from the championship by a little bit more smart moves and keeping some of the players that they already have in the building. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's end the pod with this story that a bookmaker received uh, around £310,000 worth of bets on a yellow card received by an Arsenal player in a Premier League fixture this season and flagged it to the international betting watchdog over manipulation concerns. The Athletics' Joey Durso revealed this last week. Joey joins us now. At this stage, when we record this again, Monday lunchtime, important stress at the moment, there's no formal FA investigation, is there? That's right. There's no formal investigation. The wording the FA has used is we're looking into this. So they know about it. They've been told about it. You know, we reported on, I think it was uh, Wednesday, that the FA are looking into this. And then we found out on Saturday that, as well as the bets sort of in the UK that that might be flagged to the FA, overseas a bookmaker had had bets of $420,000 which is a huge amount of money for a yellow card bet and that would have led to winnings of over a million that was flagged to them you know kind of before all this came out in the media so that, that's a big deal and that's a lot of money and nothing's proven yet there's no formal investigation and, and that's why I was going to ask next just on the amount of money that I mentioned there the amount of money you mentioned there I mean obviously that's a lot of money but in in the schemes of, of global betting markets on a yellow card that is a lot of money. Yeah. And the thing about yellow card markets, as opposed to the, the score, is it's pretty hard for sort of one individual to throw the score of a football, of a 20, 22 people running around in a competitive high-level football match with millions watching on TV. You know, the goalkeeper could sort of not dive for a penalty, but that might be pretty obvious. Whereas um, people bet lots on yellow cards. You know, a player can, can do all sorts of things to get a yellow card, which in the frenzy of a match might not, might not look particularly suspicious, which is why, you know, there was a scandal in 2018 when uh, Lincoln City reached the quarterfinals of the FA Cup and 
One of their players basically deliberately got yellow cards on the way. That was found guilty by the FA and he's been banned. So traditionally, those yellow card bets have been capped at much lower, sort of, you know, the sort of three-figure mark that people can put bets on. This offshore bookmaker took some huge bets on this yellow card and then flagged it for potential manipulation. It strikes me like so many sports and, and markets that the yellow cards... You know, betting on a yellow card might go the same way as betting on the time of the first throwing, because there are certain things within within football, within sport, that can be manipulated. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the things people like about yellow card betting is there's people think there's an element of sort of skill involved because you have the odds which are basically determined by a computer how likely is someone to get booked. But if you've noticed that a player's been time wasting a bit, or if you notice that someone's been flying into a lot of tackles and the odds haven't really moved. Like savvy people can and do make money um, betting on yellow cards. And I think for some people, that's why it really appeals as a market to bet on, as opposed to betting on the score when you're basically just guessing. Joe, what's Arsenal's position on this at the moment? Um, you know, is there any kind of internal Arsenal investigation um, or, or anything like that? Or is it a case of let's leave it to the FA or other agencies to, to, to look into this? We've obviously approached Arsenal for comment. They've not come back and given us one this is a matter for you know the FA has an integrity unit um, they'll be looking at things like um, not just the incident in question in the match but what bets were placed who were they placed by how much money and if you know it can add up to a picture like this guy the Lincoln City player it was his mates putting on bets to him to get yellow cards and they, they all lived in the same area and it was very obvious there's no suggestion that's what's happened here but they'll look at all the circumstances to try to work out what's going on and it's worth mentioning that Arsenal and FA sources are both reported as saying that no Arsenal player is under investigation or suspected of any wrongdoing. That's it. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to The Athletic and get a 33% discount by heading to theathletic.com slash football pod. And The Athletic are recording daily transfer shows at the moment, bringing you exclusive news and insight on any deals during the January window. And the only place you can hear those podcasts is on The Athletic app or by subscribing to the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Start your free trial today. That's it. I'm back on Thursday with the Business of Sport pod. The Athletic.